everyone, and welcome to another episode of Gathering Ground, a podcast where with each new episode, a special guest, or in some cases, guest, and I explore what it looks like to thrive in the nonprofit landscape. I'm Mary Morton, president of Morton Group LLC. We're a national consulting firm that operates in Chicago and works with clients from coast to coast. For more information on what we're up to at Morton Group, please go to mortongroup.com. That's M-O-R-T-E-N group.com. March 11th marked the one-year anniversary of the World Health Organization's designation of COVID-19 as a pandemic, though for many, it has felt much longer. At Morton Group, we've done a fair amount of pivoting to meet the needs of homeworking client partners and their staff, as well as continuing to meet online to preserve our connection as a team. This just scratches the surface of the ways businesses, foundations, and nonprofits across the country have had to adjust their practices, staffs, and fundraising, and revenue goals to meet the challenges of the pandemic. Today, we're very lucky to speak to three leaders in the social impact sector and to hear about their experiences of the past year and what may come next. I'm happy to introduce Ruth McFarlane, who is the VP of Advancement at the Ms. Foundation based in New York City, Marie Curosay, who is the president and CEO of the Workforce Development Council of Seattle King County, and John Peller, president and CEO of AIDS Foundation Chicago. I am so excited to have you all here today. So let me just say in terms of full disclosure, I have to acknowledge that our guests are all folks with whom we've worked before at Morton Group are currently working with. So Marie, so excited that we uh, had an opportunity to work with um, the Workforce Development Council of of uh, Seattle King County to place you there as the president and CEO. And of course, with Ruth, um, with the Ms. Foundation, where you are the VP of Advancement. How long has it been, Ruth? Are we coming up on two years? Are we talking dog years or real years? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming up on two years. <laughs> I know, everything seems so- In, the co- in COVID, the it's exactly. a whole other reality. And then John, John Peller, um, we are currently working with AIDS Foundation Chicago. Uh, and I'll just say, you know, if you are interested in looking for a senior director of uh, HR role, this will be the time to go to our website at mortongroup.com and check that out because we are we are um, actually doing the recruitment for um, a position for AIDS Foundation Chicago. And we've also worked with um, um, AIDS Foundation Chicago on uh, board recruitment and we're working with you on your racial equity action plan. So it's just like a family affair here. So excited to have you all here. We're going to talk about what the last year has been like and what we are looking forward to, right, over this over the, the next several months. And so we always like to start, however, with just giving our listeners a little background on each of you. And I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us briefly how you got to your current role. Like, how long have you been in the role? We, we know Ruth has been in a role a couple of years. Um, but how, how did you get into the, you know, for your, in your case, Ruth, you, you're doing development work, right? Um, John, I wanna, I'm going to start with you and ask you to give us a little, um, a, a sense of how you got to the AIDS Foundation Chicago uh, president and CEO role. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Mary, for inviting me to, to be on. Um, I have been at AIDS Foundation of Chicago for, believe it or not, uh, just past the 16-year mark, which is um, shocking to me, but... Uh, I started out as at AFC as our uh, state lobbyist working down in Springfield, and uh, I've been a policy geek, you know, all along. And one of my 
dreams, crazy as it might be, was uh, to work in a state capital someday. And I found myself with the opportunity to uh, be working on HIV issues and LGBTQ health. And uh, as a gay man, uh, of course, HIV is the most uh, significant health issue impacting gay men and men who have sex with men. So just incredibly honored to um, to have the privilege of working at AFC for so long and for having the opportunity to grow within the organization. And um, uh, that's just, just been amazing. So uh, it's been 20 plus years in uh, Chicago. I grew up actually in New York City, but um, have found a home here in Chicago with my partner, David, and our dog, Penny, so. All right, I love that. So Marie, tell us a little bit about how you got to Seattle. I'm one of the you know, original, born and raised in Seattle folks. There are not a lot of us, but um, I actually started as a teenager in like a community organizer doing, looking at kind of access to jobs for youth, uh, primarily youth of color in the inner city. I always say I, I have the same job now that I did when I was a teenager, uh, but it really <laughs> does speak to kind of the power of some of those internships and summer jobs. But I've worked uh, for many years, both in direct services in the community, in job development, job placement programs, workforce programs, but then moved to policy and intentionally moved to policy because I always wondered why are these programs not addressing the needs in our communities, right. very diverse communities. Um, and you know, did a number of jobs, but mostly in workforce, economic development, and even private funding. So kind of the combination of public and private. Okay. And when this opportunity came, I actually had no intention of applying. I was part of this major transformation effort and community planning session about looking at how we as a region um, address workforce development. Many siloed programs, a lot of investments, yet um, they were siloed and they were very disconnected. And while we were having this great prosperity, if you drill down, it was the community that lived in Seattle were not actually benefiting, especially communities of color. Hence, there was a large effort to move and great stakeholders. I know Mary, just in the hiring process, it was very complex because you know a lot of people were involved from community, philanthropy. You know. 100 people to be exact. Yeah. <laughs> and others, right? In a community gathering, that's right, yes. Yeah. But it was really like my organization was a very compliance-driven organization. Mm -hmm. you know, we had our, our lane. And the vision was how do we really create and build out my organization to be this regional backbone that is really centers racial equity, strengthens our partnerships with industry, but also community, uh, very focused on um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, immigrant refugee communities, those who had not been benefiting from our great prosperity. And so... Um, through this process, I have come on board and that after all these years, and this has really been kind of my passion and vision in, in my work. So, And how long uh, has it been now? It's been over a year. No, 20 months. Yes, 20 months. 20 months. Not that I'm counting, but. Yeah, but you know. <laughs> okay. And Ruth, uh, tell us a little bit about how you got to um, this foundation. Alrighty, so echoes with a couple of my colleagues here. So I um, can't say I've been doing the same thing since I was a kid, Marie. <laughs> I started off in a, I, I have the classic corporate to nonprofit story. So I started out as a lawyer in private practice. Um, what took me to law was a love and passion for justice and interest in systems and structures. Um, and the wanting to understand money and power. I don't come from a family with lawyers in it. 
And it was a way to learn about a lot of the structures and systems that we live our lives inside of um, while you know, establishing my own security. I did that for about 10 years and then switched over to nonprofit about 10 years ago. Um, and most of my time prior to Ms. has been um, in the LGBTQ advocacy space. So working with the LGBT Community Center here in San Francisco, I'm based in Oakland. Um, and then most recently at the National Center for Lesbian Rights, which was my foray into fundraising. Um, I came off the board at NCLR and became their development director when they needed one and learned the job. Um, and then the, the really, really exciting moment, I remember I was at NCLR, we were kind of moving into um, a new phase of the organization and I saw this incredible announcement out of the Ms. Foundation about their strategic plan. And seeing a 40, then 40 something year organization, legacy feminist organization, centering the lives of women and girls of color explicitly, publicly, um, in a very strategic way. And it was like a light bulb went off. And that was long before I left NCLR, but Ms. was on my radar at that moment because I understand gender justice as an umbrella that incorporates many movements. And I've seen myself in that movement space for a long time, but the piece that has not, had been missing for a long time in that conversation is this explicitness about centering race alongside gender. Um, and so I was super excited to see that that was the work Ms. wanted to do. And then obviously the journey that began with you <laughs> um, brought me over to that organization. And it's been a wonderful way to marry my passion for justice, my long standing interest in race and, and gender together um, and some of the expertise and skills that I've developed along the way. So super happy to be at Ms. and, and really enjoying it. Lovely, thank you so much. That's, that's really exciting. Um, so let's start by talking about the, um, what worked well. <laughs> um, what would you say when you reflect on the last year, right? Starting in, in March of 2020 to now, what would you say you've accomplished? What would you say were wins or, or just how would you characterize that year? If, it, if, if you don't wanna use the term wins, what would you say you've learned even in this past year? And, and Marie, I'm gonna start with you. The silver lining of COVID is that it really brought you know, people to the table for conversation and in a very different way. And I think our win was completing a regional strategic plan that really centers racial equity and inclusion that is really focused on kind of looking at disparities and systems change, but we did it in partnership with community. So our strategic plan, we actually invested in some of our community partners to be a part of that process um, and are continuing to build on some of that partnership and trust as we're starting to implement kind of the plan and move forward. Great. And John, what would you say are some of the wins or positives that you see as a result of, of the last year? I, I think I have personally grown so much in the last year uh, in, in good ways. Uh, and so it's hard to say that I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that growth, even though it's been incredibly challenging. I think I'm so proud of the way that we supported our clients. Um, we serve about six or 7,000 people living with HIV in the Chicago area every year. And so we were able to do things like um, home delivery of food. Uh, and we increased uh, by about a third to um, almost 1.2 million 
the amount of emergency rent assistance and utility assistance we were able to provide to keep people from uh, becoming homeless. Uh, and so it was, it was programs like that that really helped us to better meet the needs of clients who you know, found themselves out of work, um, unable to leave the house, you know, families out of work. Um, and so I'm, I'm really incredibly proud of, of that work that our, our staff and our partners did. I'm also really proud of the way we supported staff, everything from, um, you know, for the first time figuring out how direct service uh, staff can work remotely and this light bulb went off and it's like, oh, we, this can work, we can do this. Uh, supporting, you know, folks with with families having to deal with remote school, um, better, you know, giving people flexible schedules, um, providing mental health support uh, and you know emotional support through the racial reckoning that we had over the year. Um, so, and and many of those practices, we're we're talking about how we can continue them. So, I'm I'm just so proud of the work that our staff did this year and that we did to support them. Wonderful. And Ruth, what? What uh, accomplishments or wins or how, how's the year been for you? I like the frame of learning because it's definitely been that for Ms. Um, as a foundation, learning how to transition our grant making process into a time of, of great need and emergency. And I will say multiple pandemics facing the communities and grantee partners that we serve and work with. Um, so figuring out how to be an, an exemplary model grant maker, modeling, our, <laughs> modeling what we're asking the rest of philanthropy to do um, has been a really good, it's been a learning opportunity and I think we've had some, some real successes there. Um, the, the Zoom culture, you know, figuring out how to build a team that was partially remote, now fully remote and build the culture of that team in these little boxes, right? Um, and that's been good. And I think that the success there has been really learning together. We've continued some of the learning programs that we had initiated before COVID with the staff. And those learning opportunities have given us a place to land some of the connections that needed to be made between people as new people joined the team mid-year and hadn't met as folks had really significant things happening in their personal lives, really significant losses, you know, there was continued to be this place that we could come together and learn together. Um, and then I feel really personally proud of just from an advancement place, I feel really proud of the way that we leaned into a virtual event strategy. So we took advantage of an opportunity to put content out there um, and move away from the party structure of events and into the let's learn together education content. And we have attracted um, several new audiences and large numbers of new people to Ms. through that strategy. So that making virtual work for us has been good. That's, that's really good to hear because I, I've only had a chance to come to one Glory Awards. And let me just say that's the annual Ms. Foundation, huge event uh, that I attended, uh, I guess a couple of years ago, and it was an incredible party. I mean, it was it was really a lot of fun. In fact, I was really looking forward to coming back again. Um, I know. I, I, so I, I love how you've used that, right? Because one of the things we know about virtual work is that you can attract people from literally all over the world, right? And right. That it was not accessible before. And so why not lift that up and, and use it? And John, you just had your, your annual meeting any highlights from that, which, you know, and, and I don't know if you had your annual meeting at the same time last year, or this is their second annual meeting in the pandemic, or tell us about that. 
well, we did our annual meeting last year in person and we were, we were all cute. We were like, you know, this bump, don't hug. <laughs> yeah. Use oh sanitizer. yeah. yeah it was remember, early. It was remember early. that? Yeah. 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 Was, and, and we did it uh, this year virtually and it was, you know, I think not the most exciting moment of my life. Um, I, I, I would say, you know, we, we got the message across very effectively and my team did, I think, a, a great job, but I really miss the energy of folks being together. I think what, what we have done this year exceptionally well has been uh, doing Facebook and Instagram live events, sometimes, you know, formal, sometimes informal, um, you know, sometimes like very fun and energetic uh, to bring people together and educate folks often on policy issues. And uh, so I think that's been an area where, where AFC has really excelled in the, in the online space. And as you said, Ruth, found new audiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about staff and how you've supported staff. I know there are lots of questions often about this and I'm leading a um, Ford Foundation um, sponsored cohort right now, which actually one of your colleagues is in, um, Ruth Rosina. So it's been nice to see her um, every month for the last several months. And Marie, I'm interested in, I've seen all of your offices. You all have terrific space. I mean, just really, and, and of course, AIDS Foundation in Chicago just moved into their space pretty much. And it hadn't even really, I haven't even seen the entire space. I've only been on one floor of it. Um, however, and Ms. Foundation, I said the moment I walked into it, I never really wanted to work in another office again. I'd like to work in this office space. Um, Marie, similarly, great space, um, great views. Um, what, what have you done um, particularly for those other leaders who are listening to that you think has worked well with your teams. What, what have you done? Um, John, you, you referenced, you know, um, time off, perhaps things of that nature. Marie, were there things that you put into place? One, you know, being new in the role and, and, you know, just coming in and then, oh, wow, we're in a pandemic of, you know, with regard to COVID-19. What kinds of things did you use, did you put into place that you thought were helpful that you might share? Well, first, I would say just where we were going through this major organizational culture change and looking at our systems, there are a number of challenges. Um, I was a new leader at the organization, um, but what we did immediately was wanted to make sure staff their safety and they were safe. So went virtual, but we have the benefit of doing that because we're not at the front line doing direct services. Mm -hmm. So we also made sure that staff were able to, you know, have the supports the resources technology they needed in order to be able to work from home and have worked to start we brought in um organizational change kind of consultant but there it's i will just be honest it's not been easy i mean we have gone through significant change and um still continue to work on it and i would say we you know we launched kind of this internal racial equity um Training and kind of conversations, but it's it's really difficult in during this time. I think we're getting at the point now where it brought in some leadership because we've had some you know changing in in leadership, and so we're still at that point where we're um, getting kind of our core in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally understand that, and and. There's always change that's happening. However, when you're new in an organization and then something like this happens, it is added on to um, everything that you were gonna do anyway as, as part of a new staff person, right? You were gonna be onboarded. Um, you were gonna have a transition phase. Those things are accelerated in some cases in ter- when we are you know, moving, uh, when we've moved into this 
this kind of uh, situation. Um, Ruth, with regard to um, just you know how foundations are are making grants, what one of the things that I've noticed, and I know that you all are very um, much in tune with uh, decolonizing wealth. I've seen I've seen the T-shirts. Uh, <laughs> they have T-shirt Thursday at uh, Miss Foundation, and so. Um, you know, many of the things that foundations said they couldn't do, they actually did do, right? right. That foundation said, they, we can't turn money that quickly. We can't do this. They, they actually can do it and they have been doing it. And it's a wonderful thing. Um, do you think that, that uh, things will return to the way they used to be? And I won't call it normal because I don't think we're ever going back there. And I think that's okay. Um, however, what do you see as, as you think about the, the relationship with grantees and being responsive to them down the road? How, how do you, how was Ms. starting to think about that or has been thinking about it? Well, yeah, I think for Ms. it's something we've been thinking about for a long time and talking about before talking about it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> so what's been really interesting this year is for that to kind of catch up with the conversation. Um, so at Ms. we make multi-year general operating grants. You know, we're really committed to, to keeping that simple for the grantee and to also being really specific about what the opportunity is and making sure that we're getting it in front of the people we want to get it in front of. Um, but this year, you know, the learning for Ms. even was we had a grant, we had a grant program that we were a grant award that we we're about to announce in February, announced it at the beginning of March and had a new cohort of grantee partners joining us right as COVID happened. Yeah. And so as we were in those, you know, we think this is coming, we think this is coming and here it is. Um, and having those final conversations with, with um, prospective grantees, we decided to, to release those funds completely free of restrictions so they could use those, those funds any way they wanted to as they had to pivot in that instant and respond to the pandemic. Um, and then what we've seen, you know, as you said, like across, across the spectrum, we've seen philanthropic institutions and now a lot of corporate institutions figuring out how to do something new, something they said they couldn't do. I am not ready to speculate on where we're, whether we're going back or not. I, might, I have a very cynical side that, <laughs> that is, is waiting to see in all honesty, but what we are committed to do at MIS is stay in close contact with the grantee partners we've been working with, as well as the larger, we, we published a, um, a report called Pocket Change in I would June. love for you to talk a little about that. Yeah, yeah. I'll take a second and, and talk about that. So what Pocket Change did was set a baseline for what philanthropic funding is to women and girls of color led organizations across the country. And it includes data from over 900 participants, all of whom are um, women of color led orgs. Every state, all the territories are included in the data. Um, and lots and lots of information from that. But definitely the high level is, as you would expect, funding is very, very low. It's half a percent of all philanthropic funding annually that's going to women and girls of color-led organizations. The grant size is about half the average grant size. Um, and regionally, there's a lot of, there's, it's pretty disparate. So on a, on a national basis, you have about $5.48 going per person to each woman and girl of color each year. But if you look at the South alone, it's under two, it's less than half of that, right? Um, so regions matter. Uh, when we think about our funding. And so we said at the end of pocket change, we said, you've got you've to track it, you've got to increase it, 
And you've got to name it. You've got to name that these opportunities, if you're funding, you've got to name that, hey, this is for women and girls of color led organizations. This is for, so that people can find you. Um, so there's been a lot of interest in that report and in that call to action this past year. And I think there's been a lot of, of empowerment across movement spaces and leaders knowing how to find this money and knowing what they can really ask for. Um, so I'm hopeful that we won't go back. But what Ms, what I was going to say is Ms is really committed to going back to all these folks that we've been working with through the study and through our grant making and checking in with them and getting the stories about whether or not they're seeing changes in their funding. And we will publish those findings as we gather those up so that we can really, you know, tell truth to power and hold ourselves accountable as well as we, as this story unfolds. We are in a time of transition in the United States and, and we need to continue that forward motion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So John, when you think about the work of uh, the AIDS Foundation, uh, knowing that there has been a, you know, there's a significant uh, discussion about getting to zero rate of infections. Uh, is, the new, is it 2030 now? Yes, 2030 is our goal, yes. Right. And knowing that, I know it was an earlier goal, a number, you know, a few years ago, right? And I remember thinking, um, and I think this was, you know, when we started working with you around board recruitment, um, that if, if you were moving toward zero rate of infections, that would only be within one community, right? That would be in the white community, because we knew that the disease had not flattened out in black and brown communities, and we know that's because of stigma and racism. And so, as you have had to pivot in this year, you've talked about some of the things that you've been able to do um, in terms of how you served um, individuals, what were what were some of the, the strategies that you used that you can share with people in terms of doing some of your, your um, direct service work? Right, so as, as you mentioned, Mary, uh, we are uh, in partnership with the city and state health departments, like many jurisdictions across the country, uh, leading a plan to end the HIV epidemic by 2030. Um, now, I, I um, just saw some testing numbers uh, from this year, and the number of people who have, who have gotten tested for HIV and diagnosed plummeted uh, over the past year. And so that really may set back our progress. And we have a lot of work to do ahead to make sure that people who um, might not have gotten diagnosed are, are getting into care. So, um, so really some uh, critical, critical work that, that needs to happen as a sector. And you know, that's the case for so many health conditions um, facing men and women. So I think what, what has um, been really amazing is the way that our staff um, and teams responded to client needs. And an example of that has been putting clients up in hotels who were homeless. Uh, and we, um, housed at least uh, 65 clients who are living with HIV who are homeless. Um, and you know, obviously you don't want people living with HIV in a shelter or on the streets anytime, but especially during COVID. And we were so fortunate because we were able to transition all of those folks into long-term permanent housing. Um, and um, so that has just been an incredible opportunity to identify the most vulnerable populations, I mean, truly the most vulnerable population of homeless people. Um, and this, you know, the, this was all because the federal government said, you can use this money to house people how you need to. And um, obviously, you know, long-term hotels are not sustainable because the cost is astronomical. But this is the kind of thing we need to reinvent our systems to do. We need to provide safe, secure, um, 
housing that's, you know, not shelters for people who are in need and all kinds of needs, not just HIV. So one of the things that, one of the many things that I hope will be a critical lesson learned is um, around meeting people's housing needs more quickly uh, mm-hmm. and better. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and when I was in Seattle last, um, because it was actually for the, the um, sort of community uh, gathering we had uh, for the candidates for the position that Maria is in, um, we, were, we were in, I guess we were in City Hall, right, Marie? And so by the time we left that evening, City Hall in Seattle at night becomes shelter for folks. So people, they were rolling out you know, the mattresses as we were leaving. I thought, wow, I, you know, I'd never seen that before. It makes complete sense, right? This space is not being used. Um, are those kinds of things still in, in place? Or what, what, what have you seen happen as a result of, of uh, COVID-19 in terms of how the city is supporting, um, you know, folks who are homeless and, and, and even the services that you provide? It's actually been exacerbated. I think the homeless problem has gotten worse. You know, we've seen COVID kind of the economic impact has really disproportionately um, impacted low-wage workers, many people of color. So there's a lot of insecurity, financial insecurity while they were working, while once they you know, lost their job, kind of the bottom fell out. So we have absolutely been partnering in a different way with our housing and homelessness providers, both along lines of advocacy and kind of voice and recognizing that the, all of our systems are interrelated. And that's always been a challenge that it's not just about job, but we have to talk about childcare. We have to talk about housing, you know, wraparound services, wraparound services. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have opened up some of the shelters, but it's a huge issue. And there's a lot of, um, I would say there, there are some challenges, both politically, but also there are some, a lot of pushback on both sides and, it's like we're I'm on a committee now that's looking at how do we redevelop downtown because it's at 15% occupancy for buildings and the hotels are only at 20% yeah and the business owners are talking about like it's all these homeless people and all the shelters and it's you know and then the other folks are saying well wait a minute it's you know it's about this and it's where the workers that got laid off and many of them are now homeless Right. right so it's it's, it's very complex and I think Seattle has a long ways to go and it's, um, but it's really pushing us and the community is pushing us as institutions to think more collaboratively. And, and you know, for us, the institutions are, are sometimes, oftentimes the biggest barrier to doing that. Absolutely. And what I've seen is such creativity, honestly, in ways that we would have not ever even thought about because we didn't have to. And, and so as we are, you know, starting to open up, right, we know about the American uh, Rescue Plan and, you know, uh, relief, the uh, checks that are coming are, you know, in process right now. Uh, many states are starting to lift uh, some of their requirements, which is a little concerning, <laughs> let me just say, of how quickly some states are doing that. We see vaccines rolling out and really the pace has picked up so much since January. It's, it's unbelievable. When you think about reopening or have you all started to even think about reopening? I'm curious because that is something we're talking to lots of organizations about is how do we gradually reopen? What does that look like? Um, what are, what, how, do we, how do we go about doing that? And, and how do we stage it, if you will? And so Ruth, have you all started to talk about any of that or how, how you 
as an organization are going to reopen and or how you can support your grantees around reopening? Yeah, um, we, you know, we started thinking about reopening as we went into COVID and what that, you know, how will we come out of this was sort of the thinking because we all went remote and the learning around going remote made us realize, wait a minute, it might be best to do a remote first plan for the organization regardless. Um, and so we've been working on what does it take to be remote first? What does it take to make it possible for people to work comfortably and effectively at home for the long term? What will that mean for then, you know, this gorgeous space that we have, which you know Teresa loves very dearly. <laughs> our, our CEO um, is 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 one of the she's a leader who really is deeply committed to personal connection and being in space together. And I love that about her. And so we are working through, you know, how do you balance the culture of your organization with the realities of, of working away? Um, most of what that's looked like in the last year has been really technology, looking at how do, we, how do we make technology work for everybody? What's the hardware we need? And then what are the software systems we need? How do we make this work? And, and that's been the learning curve. Um, in terms of planning to go forward, right now we have, uh, folks can come to the office if they're local to Brooklyn. They can come to the office currently. We're all on teams so that we can come in and safely work um, with very few people in the space. And we've got all the protocols set up to do that. So that will be, we're already in and away in phase one. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'll move it from there as people feel comfortable to come back and, and their family and, work, and family life situation, right? Schools and all of that. Um, kids at home can be balanced. Um, in, form, in terms of, of grant supporting grantees, we actually aren't at this time doing any grant making around reopening, but part of our grant making is um, capacity supports, capacity building supports. And so through that, folks have access to executive coaching, management training, technical skill building, and so forth. And many of those resources are focused on reopening. Um, so they're getting some technical support that way. Nice, nice. And and John, how, how how have you all started to think about reopening the space? So I think one of COVID has has really shown us the importance of building trust with staff, and also the importance of you know clear and honest and transparent communication. Uh, and so we just told staff um, that they are going to be required to return to the office um, at some point. You know after after you know midsummer and we talked about the why which is that you know we believe that face-to-face -face communication at least sometimes um, is how relationships are built and how work happens and how we get the best work done um, and so you know we, we've also told staff that uh, almost everyone is going to be allowed to work remotely for some part of their you know work week or um, and, and we've said we want input from staff and we're, we're not going to do a one size fits all approach and say, you know, you have to be in three days a week and, you know, um, and that's the end of the story. So we're, we're really going to let the, the teams decide with, within some parameters how often they're in and what that looks like for them. Um, we're also really, really encouraging folks to get vaccinated. Uh, we're, of, of course, not going to mandate that, but we're really, really encouraging staff to get vaccinated and, and for some staff helping them to get vaccinated. Um, so we're going to be having a lot of conversations with staff about what 
coming back to the office looks like and what they want to see um, because uh, we want to do it right. And um, it is probably going to be the most challenging thing that, that we're going to be facing in, in the year ahead to maintain the trust that we've worked really hard to earn from staff over the past year. Mm -hmm. uh, that No, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I just want to really encourage you, you know, some of the strategies we were talking about in the cohort that I'm co-facilitating is we really are just, to your point, one size will not fit all. And so just do a survey, right? Just talk to people about what they, they are interested in, what they're comfortable with. Uh, this was a topic of conversation in, in um, the last session that I co-facilitated and uh, people really had lots of questions about whether or not they could um, mandate that people were vaccinated. Um, and, you know, you've got to really look at your ADA, um, um, you know, um, regulations and make sure that you are not in any way violating uh, someone's uh, privacy, um, you know, you can't, you know, for a group like Morton Group, where we do executive searches, we have closed 10 exec, you know, executive searches in the last year, and they were all done virtually, which was hard for people to sort of wrap their arms around at first. There was no other way to do it. And, um, and so this idea that I think, I mean, because I think you can create intimacy, and I think we've done it, uh, you know, fairly well on Zoom. It is not, no, it is not the ideal. However, it can be done. And um, how are you going to talk to staff about, you know, what's best for them and also then what's gonna work for the, the larger group of, of folks right on the team and giving people some autonomy over that. I think that's gonna be really important. Um, Marie, what, what are you all talking about with regard to opening? Very similar to John. I mean, it's almost, Exactly, very similar. But it's because we are not doing the direct services, right? There's some flexibility, but also because we are talking about changing the way we do our, changing the way we work, our values and the way we operate. And also kind of this cross siloed internally work that needs to be done. Um, we think it's important that we actually have some people start you know, coming in, but recognize it's not gonna be, we're not all gonna be there at one time and we're, having the conversations with staff now, but some of the staff, you know, some of our finance staff have been going in fairly regularly. Uh, some of our staff, when they know they have a big, you know, national kind of call because of their internet, regardless of, you know, support, they've gone into the office. And I go into the office, uh, you know, once a week maybe, but um, I just think it's really important for us to at least figure out a way to come back um, because of that kind of connectedness and communication piece. Mm -hmm. But absolutely safety is at the, you know, foremost, most important. Right. Yeah, and, and the other thing that we've noticed is that you really have to over-communicate during this time. Um, people need to hear things multiple times, right? John is saying yes, um, that you can't say too much because what we know is even when we're not in this kind of a pandemic, uh, people get a little bit of information and then what they don't know, they just make up. <laughs> cases, right? It's like, well, I thought it would be this way because of X, Y, and Z. And so we were really stressing in our last session, you just got to over-communicate. And, and what have you found, because I've found this myself as a, as a leader, um, I am, you know, one of the things that I was saying to folks, which was very funny, um, my, my team members thought it was very interesting to hear me say this to another group of folks. I said, if you're, you know, a leader that often leads more with your head than with your heart, 
this is the time to change that. Uh, this is the time when you really have to connect with your staff, whether it is something that you are comfortable doing or not, that is what they need. Um, and that is really important to provide those opportunities for people, you know, just to check in and to say how they're doing. Like that means so much. Um, it, it, you just can't overstate how important that is. And so um, the communication I find has just been um, much more um, important than it's ever been before. What is one fun thing I, that you've done with your staff? I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, we were coming together uh, in September. Uh, we always do an annual photo shoot. And um, this year, someone had the bright idea that they would do a dance off of TikTok at the photo shoot. <laughs> so everyone got the dance. Um, they complained bitterly about it. I'll just say that. Um, they said it was too fast, uh, said it was too long. Um, it was 18 seconds. Uh, I know because I picked it. And uh, <laughs> and um, it was, but let me just say the amount of back and forth about this dance. Um, it was, you know, certainly, you know, a team building exercise. It was a lot of fun and people were connecting in different ways around you know, learning the dance. You know, at one point it was like, well, you're gonna to need to do the dance, Mary, because we, you know, we will probably understand it better if you did it. So I made a recording, I did the dance. I mean, literally 18 seconds, okay? Uh, and so we actually do, someone, when we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, someone said they wanted to see the receipts. We do have receipts. Um, I do have a snippet. I think there's about five seconds that we can put online. Um, but it was just a lot of fun to do. It was just a lot of fun. Um, and have you done anything that maybe you wouldn't have done before that you're, you, you decided we're going to give this a, a, you know, we're going to give this a try. Why not? Anyone want to offer any, anything that you've done? Any activities? Hmm. We have Zumba together and cooked together. We have painted together. <laughs> you cooked together. Okay. We had a cooking class, which I was just like, there is no way this will work on how am I even going to get my laptop situated in my kitchen in a way that makes any sense. But it was really fun. And, and it was far. None of these things were perfect. Like they were so far from perfect. We did a scavenger hunt with all That's the kids and all the kids, you know, everybody had their kids involved in the scavenger hunt. That was the thing, actually, people come back and talk about it. Um, but yeah, they're not perfect. It's not about being perfect. It's about laughing and having, being silly and getting to do that bonding that we're not getting to do in person. Absolutely. So it, yeah. That's great. Okay, so it can be done. Okay, um, anything else from John or, or Marie that you all may have tried that you, you, you didn't even think you would ever try? Um, you know, if you were working in your office on a regular basis. Yeah, we we did things like uh, we did a scavenger hunt, which was actually really fun. And believe it or not, I won somehow, which was oh, really? it wasn't rigged. It wasn't rigged. I, really? I uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> we, we did. Um, we always do uh, spirit week around the holidays. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody wears like an ugly sweater and all that. So that was it was fun to continue some of those some of those traditions. And then we have staff, you know, groups of staff teams who, for example, you know, are texting each other, what are you eating today? And they all text each other's pictures of their, of their lunch. So it's nice to see some of those, um, some of those, you know, traditions continue. Great. Anything to add to that, Marie? No, I've just got to say it was a lesson learned. And one of the things that um, I've, I've told staff, I, you know, they're much younger and they're all like, I said, there's the, like a, monthly kind of just lunchtime connection time. 
I said, you all, I will join, but you guys are much more creative and like, you know, about it. And I've asked them to come up with ideas, but I, you know, recognize that um, that's an area that I have not paid as much attention to. And hence I have brought on uh, chief of staff three weeks ago to help really look at kind of the internal stuff. Cause a lot of my work is externally focused as well. Right. Absolutely. Well, that's great. And it's great. You had the resources and the opportunity to do that. I think people are surprised that, um, you know, executive searches and, and are, are still happening. Uh, people still are, are absolutely applying and, and getting into new roles. So that that's wonderful. Um, we are going to uh, take a short break. And when we come back, well, we're going to move to the one of my favorite parts of the of the podcast, which is answering listener questions. So we're going to take just a brief break. You're listening to Gathering Ground, and we're back in a moment. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to mary at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. That's Mary at Gathering Ground Podcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. So, as I said, this is one of our favorite parts of the uh, podcast. We get to hear from listeners from around the country. And so this is actually a question from someone in the Pacific Northwest, Lena. Um, she says, my organization sent me to a four-day virtual conference on racial equity and inclusion in the workplace, and I was excited to bring my rich learning back to start integrating into our organization's culture. Our facilitators at the conference warned about approaching things with a too-much-too-soon mindset, so the first thing I asked about was starting a small DEI committee at our organization. That was eight months ago, and I keep checking in with no return uh, or much of any response. Is there anything you recommend I do next? So who would like to offer some suggestions? Some of you are in process on some of this work. I know some of you have been working on it. What would you suggest Lena can, you know, should do, can do um, to move things along in her organization? What comes to mind? Anyone can respond. So I'll, I'll kick this off, Mary. Um, I, I have heard from our staff many, many times, uh, particularly around racial equity, around things like compensation. Um, uh, why is this taking so long? Why is this taking so long? Um, and uh, you know, everything takes longer than I think it should too. And things are taking even longer during, during COVID. Um, I really appreciate when staff keep asking and keep raising the questions because that's the push that's needed. And um, I think it's, it's also can be helpful to have different people asking. So it's not just, you know, so, so Lena, get some friends to ask um, too, get some colleagues. Um, and, you know, if, if you feel safe doing this and, you know, feel like it's not going to jeopardize your, your job, Raise it publicly, you know, when when there are um, uh, all staff meetings or you know team meetings. Um, ask what's going on. Ask your uh, team leader or supervisor uh, to do some advocacy for you, um, and because that uh, that push is needed. I know I I appreciate it when when staff push us, even though 
it can be frustrating and, and make us, um, make me sometimes feel a little, little stuck. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anything else to offer Ruth or Marie? Ruth? I think, um, I'm just wondering if this would help Lena, if there's any way to propose some ideas as well as the ask. Um, and if there's a way to bring, get those ideas from staff. So get buy-in while you're at it, right? Because that's gonna be important in the long run anyway. So if there's a way to have some of these ideas bubble up from staff, I'm thinking about how we started our racial equity work at Ms. in the last couple of years. And I know that all of those ideas came out of a staff group that was called the Culture Club. It was not, you know, really just, this is about racial equity. Yes, that's what the work was about, but it was about the culture of the organization and it was putting that culture in the hands of staff. So if you can start somehow formulating from there, that might also help. Great. Did you want to add anything to that, Marie? I would just say that, you know, so my staff also asked about, I mean, and I said, I want to see, like, I gave them a lot of resources, that, but I want to see, like, what are those activities and work with? Actually gave approval and funded, you know, a trainer that they, they selected, but I, I would just say needed to step back because we didn't get into any of the kind of critical race theory, theory and who we are in relationship to the community, and it got very much into... Personnel, this, you know, it was not, so it's like we needed to step back mm -hmm. and we are now bringing in and bringing in, and I'm being more proactive around bringing in some consultants, but also doing it in a way that um, brings community to the table because our organization has been very distant and not connected to the community. Mm -hmm. And I always maintain we can't do it within, you know, internally and create our own kind of culture without partnering with community if we're going to mm -hmm. change. So, so in this case, this is about the um, inside the organization. Would you, is that, so your, your response to your folks has been, you're open to what they would like to do and you're giving them some autonomy to bring you some ideas about how to make it happen. Okay, okay. You know, one of the things that I think um, was resonating for me, particularly um, with what you were saying, John, in terms of people saying, well, why hasn't it happened yet? Is that we are all, um, you know, trying to, um, I think, really address and recognize the impacts of white supremacy culture, which is it should have happened, you know, six months ago, three years ago, whatever the case may be, and um, just have to own that. Um, and that um, everything that we want to do, you know, everything that you want to put in a plan, for instance, cannot be measured, right? And that doesn't mean it's not happening. And so really, um, even in terms of trying to get the work started, um, if people don't have some sense of all the different pieces that must go into it and don't understand, you know, sort of have any kind of um, understanding of white supremacy culture, they will see it as you're just stalling. You're just, you're not, you're not taking this seriously. When in fact, there are things that have to happen, right? There's a process. And at times we know people are stalling because nobody, you know, people aren't running toward, you know, racial equity work often. It's like, oh, this is what I want to do when I go to work. And particularly for people of color, who was I was saying to, um, you know, someone earlier today who was talking about just the uh, enormous exhaustion they felt from doing, you know, we do trainings, we trained, or uh, we had about 6,100 folks last year in different sessions, which is more than we've had. Um, and, and, and it was a lot, it was a heavy lift. And it is different when you, and we intentionally at Morton Group always partner a white person and a person of color in our training sessions because we want to model power and 
as, as those of us who are people of color know, often we will get, you know, we'll end up doing the heavy lift or most of the work. And so um, really being able to, to acknowledge that um, we need to have, have some kind of process and the work itself is a process and it's gonna take a minute to do. It's, it's gonna take a while. So it's important that people see there's still something happening, right? It's gonna be incremental. We talk about it being iterative, right? It's not gonna happen all at night. We are trying to really work on how we've been socialized in most cases, all of our lives. And so if, if people can, and, and so that really has to do with trust, which I think you, you talked about. You, I think John, you mentioned that. And we often talk about um, our work with the client partner moving at the speed of trust. We have to be able to trust each other because we're going to push you on some things and it's going to be uncomfortable and that's part of the work. And even talking about the process is going to be uncomfortable and that's part of the work. And so when you can look at it from that perspective, um, I think it, it helps uh, minimize some of the defensiveness that people feel um, when it's like, well, why didn't you do this? I've been asking you about it. You know, let's go. What can you point to that has been done, right? Um, that idea of what are your assets, right? What are you leveraging? What are you building on? I think are all things that, um, yes, Lena wants to keep in mind. Um, so here's a question from Danny in the Southwest. One of the benefits of working at a predominantly PLC organization is the ability to talk openly about issues surrounding race and equity. Unfortunately, even in the most diverse spaces, white supremacy culture is still present. That's right. Um, I still see anti-blackness and microaggressions, hiring and vendor engagement. I don't know how to bring this up to my colleagues and need their support to make changes at the institutional level. Any ideas? So again, this person is seeing um, anti-blackness and microaggressions, hiring and vendor engagement. Um, also it's acknowledging that white supremacy culture, as I just said, is ever present uh, for all of us. Um, how, how, pardon me, how can you sort of lean into these questions into these dynamics um, with other staff. How do you how do you garner support? Any ideas about that? These are much harder questions than we usually have. I just want you to know that these are special for you all. <laughs> it's a really good question. I mean, yeah, they're so both they're both questions about how do we change yeah. systems, exactly. change which is really overwhelming. And what you you mentioned fatigue earlier, Mary. I think that's something decision making fatigue is real and in a time that's as dynamic and change that's happening as fast as it is right now and has been for a year I think leadership within organizations <laughs> I can certainly speak to that like we're tired like you get your brain gets tired you make so many decisions in a day like how many to start this new thing and that new thing and answer this question and do something else a, a totally different way um, and so one thing for all members of staff regardless of rank to to keep in mind is that we need to hold each other with that kind of compassion around the fatigue that we all have having to make decisions constantly. And when you have decision-making fatigue, you are less likely to make a good one. <laughs> so, so it's just important to remember that and to keep, keep that in mind when you're thinking about how fast you wanna pace the change you wanna see in your organization. I think it's really appropriate to name that White supremacy has crept into all of our institutions and in the, in the guise of perfectionism and going fast and doing it all and scaling and all the things. And right now there's real change we wanna see. So the other thing I would say is start to build a coalition within your organization. And by that, I don't mean an us and them kind of coalition. I mean, 
educate one another. How can you learn together? What is the opportunity around this change you wanna see to start with some initial learning? Maybe you just share an article, right? To your colleagues or to, to leadership who have the authority to make the decision that you want. Um, but be gentle and, and yet persistent, as I think John said this earlier, being persistent is still really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, anything else? Anyone else wants to offer to that question? I think when you're looking at kind of those system changes, what are, there are some assessments that you can do as an institution, an organization that really calls out some of those structures and those practices on the systemic level. I always think using those tools makes it less personal, but it creates this process. And I've just got to say, as a leader of color coming into an organization that has not been very ethnically diverse, um, I'm having, there's challenges, especially I would say, because I'm seeing on the ground urgency in the community and it's disproportionately people of color. And so I'm pushing. And my pushback is like, well, that is so such white supremacist leadership style talking about this urgency and like, you know, so we're really, um, there's, you know, we're going through these conversations now, but I would also say in the community, there is urgency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a balancing act for sure. Mm -hmm. It's a balancing act. And part of it is recognizing it. I thought, you know, I, I feel like we just have to be able to at least recognize it and then figure out how we're going to address it. Um, I, I feel like there are many times when we're not really sure what's happening. And it's like, we're not, we know there's some disconnect um, between what staff may want and what is possible. And so how do we how do we come together and meet somewhere in the middle on what is what is what really can be done and shows our commitment, right? Um, you know, as leaders in an organization to moving these these things forward. Because again, it all comes back to trust and relationship building. I mean, so much of it has to do with that. And if you weren't doing that before the pandemic uh, set in, then the road was going to be a lot bumpier. Right as we're as we're doing this work, so um, and I and I love this idea of just uh, being compassionate. To your point, Ruth, and and we like to say, to, you know, let's extend grace to each other. Um, you know, when someone's child opens the door while they're on Zoom, it is not the worst thing in the world, right? If their cat walks across the screen, it is not the worst thing in the world, you know. Um, and so let's recognize again, feeling very fortunate that we can do our work at home because there's so many people as we know who cannot. And so that's just something we have to keep in mind. So here's, here's our last question. Uh, this is from Samantha. I am the CEO of an organization with a staff of about 45 and an executive team of four. Our staff, have, um, has at, our staff has been absolutely amazing during the pandemic. They have been flexible and humble and they've continued to do our important work despite the ongoing months of the pandemic. The only problem is I'm starting to lose my steam. I thrive on the energy bouncing around the office pre-March 2020. How can I lift myself up while continuing to be strong for my staff so they have some grounded, someone grounded to lead the organization? And I have to say that I hear this a lot. Um, I do executive coaching and I, I mean, I hear it all over in terms of folks feeling like I don't do well in this environment. It's hard for me to really lead and, being, and be a cheerleader in front of my team when I am really not doing well myself. And so, um, what would you suggest? John, you want to start? Oh, that's one that really feels very close to home for me. I think being honest with staff and with the team about what you're struggling with, because they're all struggling with the same stuff. I mean, they're, 
you know, that's exactly what, what they're all going through. And uh, I'm so lucky I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, d deal with remote learning for, for a kid or, you know, any, anything like that. But um, just we, we've really tried to, to share our struggles openly with each other at, at AFC. And um, I think that's so important, being vulnerable as a leader and showing that vulnerability in a, in a very honest way and not a, you know, performative way is, is really important. Uh, and I think that's a way to build trust. We've talked a lot about building trust today. Absolutely. I think, and I think that vulnerability, right, that's going to make a huge difference, particularly again, if you're the person who's always in control, in charge, let's go, let's make it happen. And then to acknowledge that, oh, this is really, is exhausting. It is exhausting and on many different levels. Um, what would you all um, offer Marie or, or Ruth? So one of the other positives that's come out of this is I've seen my leadership team just rise to the occasion, right? And it's giving up some of the control and some of the work that you're doing and really being able to share. Um, and then self-care. I mean, you know, we all have, and I struggle with it, I will say, but, you know, I'm glad the sun's coming out because I will garden. I do my, you know, it's like the things that you need to do to, to take care of yourself as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we, because we, I was going to ask about self-care, so we know you like to garden. Um, Ruth, what would you add? Well, on the self-care tip, for me, it's been meditation, meditation, meditation. And I've, you know, I've dabbled with that before this year, but, but I needed a way to recharge and I needed space. Like I can't go outside and I can't, you know, I'm feeling very restricted. So there's a big space inside. And, and that's been my discovery this year. Um, in terms of, of, revitalizing ourselves as leaders. Um, a lesson I've learned actually from our CEO at Ms. is really just taking space. Being, She has encouraged us to take space. I have seen her do it. Um, I wanna see her do it more, but I have seen her do it. Where just be offline, try to take a Friday, try to figure out, can I take a Monday morning? And we've all played with our calendars. Monday morning works for a little while and then it doesn't. And then it's Wednesday afternoon. And then it's Friday, okay, Friday, no recurring meetings if, if I have to do meetings, right? Just figuring out how to continue, being very intentional and consistent about creating space. Um, another, one other thing we did at Ms. that I found really helpful and I learned a lot from, we did spirit week. Uh, I think our spirit week is maybe the same, maybe different, but we had intended to be in place together before COVID. We were all gonna come into the office, cancel all other meetings and just be together, learn together and, and do work together. Couldn't do that. Um, but we still canceled all of our meetings for that week. And what I, I didn't think that was possible. <laughs> um, turns out it is possible to cancel all your meetings for a week and you get a lot done and it's really generative time. Like I got so many more ideas and stuff figured out. So taking space sounds scary, but it actually is highly, highly productive. Absolutely, I, I agree with that so much. Um, anything you wanted to add, John? I saw something resonating over there, I think. <laughs> oh, I love the idea of canceling meetings. Let's, <laughs> let's <just laughs> take that one back to the team and see how that flies. Um, I, I just want to comment about, about self-care. And for me, um, in addition to my partner, David, and our dog, Penny, and, you know, lots of walks with, with her, um, uh, working out has been just so mm -hmm. important to me. And it's been, you know, sometimes outside and even, you know, in, in February, March, um, December, 
I'm, I'm going to do it. Um, just having that great cohort of people to see, you know, every morning or almost every morning at 6am. Um, I'm so lucky to be physically able to do that and healthy enough to do that and, and have access to that. So that's been a really critical part of self-care to me. And, and I think one of the most important things is to have some kind of practice, right? Whatever it is, whatever's going to work for you, find something. We too just adopted a we, well, I don't know if your dog, uh, we just adopted a, a rescue from um, Texas. Her name is Dory um, and she's really cute. She's a, a lab mix. She's a black dog. I don't know if you all know, but dog and cat racism is real. People do not, don't, don't do not readily adopt black dogs and cats. Um, have a black dog too, go black okay, dog. There you are, that's real. right. I mean, it's, um, it's ridiculous, okay? But it's real um, and so, um, we have been thinking about it and we thought, well, if we don't do it now, when are you gonna do it, right? When we have all this time, we thought, um, and I'm sure like many of you, um, I'm trying to not work as much as I can because it all starts to blur together. You know, I'm in my office now, when I'm done with work, I often just take my laptop and go to the room with it, which is really bad. I'm gonna not do that today though, as I'm saying it out loud, I'm saying this for myself. Um, so the self-care piece, and we're really stressing that with our staff as well. What are you doing? How are you taking care of yourself? Um, this week or last week, we had a lunch and learn. And so we sent everyone, um, and, and if you've been in Chicago, you know this for a fact, but maybe you've heard of something. I know John knows Garrett's popcorn. Um, and there's a, uh, a cheese and caramel corn mix. Mm, 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 mm. I'm telling you. Um, so I thought I would be kind and get everyone the individually wrapped packages, not just a tin of it where you just stick your hand into it and you can just eat it until it's gone. Uh, so anyway, that was a little treat for people that, that they had for the um, lunch and learn last week. You know, we during the holidays, we actually delivered catered meals for a holiday party. And I love the scavenger hunt idea. That is fantastic. That's a great idea. And it's really much easier to do than people think. Um, because that you have all these things around you in your home, right? So that's a great idea. Um, we have lots of resources that we're going to put on our uh, website um, following this podcast as well. Lots of ideas, lots of um, just strategies that you can think about. We have some data um, about, um, I think it's actually from the uh, SHRIM, from Society for Human Resource Management, some of the surveys they've been doing about how people are feeling about coming back to the office, which I wanna encourage our listeners to to also uh, take a look at. And as I said, just talk to your staff, right? Find out, do a survey, what is going to work best for them uh, and, and really plan for some flexibility. Um, because I think people are often very surprised at where people are in that continuum of maybe not even wanting to get a vaccine to not feeling at all comfortable coming back to the office and everything in between. And, um, and how do you adjust for that, right? How do you make that work? So, so that's gonna be, I think, the challenge over the next several months um, as we move into to warmer weather. And um, the work that each of you are doing is, is critically important. If you had to um, look back um, and say, there was one thing I know now that I didn't know, that I wish I had known at the beginning of this, is there anything that comes to mind? Something that you've, you've reflected on that you thought, well, I wish I had, thought about that in a different way or I wish I had known that anything that you can you can think of I think for me one of I've had a few new new team members um join us this year and what I've learned is that onboarding takes a lot longer um in this environment and had I known that 
at the beginning of the year, that would have been <laughs> lovely <laughs> to not overwhelm some team members as they joined. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Everything is taking longer, I find. Right. Uh, pretty much, right, during this time. And, and not really having any real concept of what time is. Like the fact that it's Friday, Really, I just thought it was Monday yesterday, right? Am right. I the <laughs> right? So it's it's the time has been completely morphed uh, in many ways. Anything to add, Marie or John, about things that you know now that you know you didn't know at the beginning, or you wish you had known, or might have done differently? Well, I should have known. I will say just this need for like this more frequent, constant communication, right? Because if you're not doing that, you know, creates opportunities for people to make assumptions and um and then really didn't put kind of as much time into it as I absolutely know I should have okay and and I'm a big big believer and when we know better we do better right now we know John anything to add to that I think the it, it's become even more uh critical that we build personal relationships with folks um even you know, in the workplace, the personal relationships is what counts and what gets the what gets the work done. So I, I really want to have a lot more, you know, 30 minute coffees with people. Um, and, you know, can I start doing that now while we're on Zoom? I had lunch with somebody the other day on Zoom. It was great. It was really awesome. And so doing things like that, that are uh, that that are relationship building where we're talking about not work or work, um, but having those one on ones. Um, and I think it goes for our whole leadership team at AFC and for anyone who's a manager, you've got to build that personal relationship. Excellent. And that, my friends, is where we're going to leave it. Thank you so much for joining us on this uh, episode of Gathering Ground. I want to thank John and Ruth and Marie, and uh, we'll have lots of information about them, links to their organizations and all kinds of resources um, on the Gathering Ground website page. Thank you all for being here and uh, we'll see you next time on Gathering Ground. We are so pleased to let you know that you can now find Gathering Ground on iTunes, in addition to SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, Breaker, and Radio Public, and at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. I'm Mary Morton, and this has been another episode of Gathering Ground.